Hey everyone, you can listen to all seasons of As She Rises, including the new season three, ad-free on Wondery Plus. Remembering Tata at Tamquixen, a glossary of bell-related words, chimes, sings, peals, tolls. It is a feeling of silver. It rings and shines at the edges. Like the scales of a fish, it flickers, tintinabulates the signal of a charm, of magic, of a movie memory sequence. And then there is mother, home from the cannery, covered in the scales of hundreds of gutted fish. She shimmers like a mermaid. Long day, I ask. When I lunch at noon, she replies, the sky is a polished silver spoon. By quitting time, tarnish has overtaken all signs of shine. That's how long the day is. You must have cleaned a lot of fish, I say. I think we cleaned out all of Puget Sound. There used to be gooseberries at Gooseberry Point. Now there is the cannery. Won't be long before all the fish are gone, then the cannery will go and all will have is hunger and sorrow. A burden is the heaviest bell of a carillon. Its register is low. I wish I had a magic wand to chime the cheerful sound of gooseberries sprouting up out of the ground. Back in 2014, I spent much of the year traveling. I explored the foothills of Chefchaouen in Morocco, jumped into icy waters on the outskirts of Stockholm, and hiked among the chalets of Saviez, Switzerland. As I boarded my final flight, bound for Seattle-Tacoma International, I was overwhelmed with that bittersweet feeling that comes from nearing the end of a really good book, when you start to realize that you'll never be able to experience it for the first time ever again. So when I got back to my childhood home, I was still antsy and struggling to stay inside. So I went down to the water and I pulled out my trusty kayak. It's a faded from sun orange ride atop kayak that was lightweight enough for me to lug around as a teenager. I named it Siren. I pushed Siren into the water and was floating out in front of my house when my neighbor came down to the bulkhead. I grew up next door to an expert fisherman the kind of guy who treats the practice with great reverence and evades any and all questions that might reveal his coveted fishing spots. It was a secret I was happy to respect for fear of losing access to the incredible salmon he shared with my family. It just didn't feel like coming home unless there was fresh salmon. From my kayak, I watched as he tossed salmon carcasses into the air. As he did... I heard a cry and a flapping of wings as two bald eagles swooped down from overhead to grab the carcasses. It was miraculous and wild. It was at that moment, as I floated out on the water, that I realized out of all the magical places I'd seen, out of all the natural wonders that took my breath away, 
it's hard to top the Pacific Northwest. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is As She Rises. For our second season, we're telling the stories of climate progress that give us the hope we need to keep going. The poem you heard at the top of the show is called Remembering Tata at Tom Weekson by Rena Priest. This season, we're excited to collaborate with The Slowdown, hosted by Ada Limon. From American Public Media and in partnership with the Poetry Foundation, The Slowdown delivers a different way to see the world through poetry. All the poets you'll hear this season will also be featured on The Slowdown during Earth Week. I encourage you to listen to The Slowdown to hear more by Rena. Our story today takes us back to my neck of the woods, specifically the Skagit watershed. The watershed is huge. It's a swath of tributaries and land about the size of Delaware. The headwaters of the Skagit River originate in Canada, spill down over the border into the U.S., crossing through the Cascade Mountains before opening out into Puget Sound. The Puget Sound, which is the colonizer name for the Salish Sea, is where the Pacific Ocean comes to rest. Its peaceful, salty waters make for an ideal habitat for all kinds of sea creatures, most crucially for salmon. Salmon are ecologically and culturally important to pretty much everything that breathes in the Pacific Northwest. The life cycle of salmon is a journey kids who grow up in the area probably know by heart. Salmon hatch in freshwater, head out towards the ocean in adulthood, and then head back to their natal springs to spawn before dying, which in turn supplies the river with nutrients and eggs for the next cycle. It's a sort of hero's journey that salmon have been completing for millions of years. Our poet, Rena Priest, is the first indigenous poet laureate for Washington state. She's a member of the Lummi Nation, which has inhabited the land around modern-day Bellingham, right on the U.S.-Canada border, and into the northern San Juan Islands for thousands of years. Their traditions and culture are intertwined with the life cycle of the salmon. The relationship of the salmon to the Lummi is that that's our sacred food, and there's a way of harvesting salmon that is really unique to the Lummi, and it's called reef netting. The net rests between two canoes, and there's a false reef that guide the fish up into the net. When the fish are coming in, the skipper will yell the signal, and then people will lift the net right at the moment that the fish are coming through. So... That is said to have been modeled after a womb, that the fish are the life-giving force that come to feed the people for another season. But as colonizers occupied the Puget Sound, the Lummi's sacred connection to the salmon was severed. And it's this broken bond that served as the impetus for Rena's poem. The title of the poem, Remembering Tata at Tampuixin, Tata is the affectionate name for mother in Chasen, my tribal language, and Tamquixen is the place name of Gooseberry Point, where I grew up. This poem remembers hearing my Uncle Casmer talk about my grandma Rena and how she came home one day and she was just tired and she was covered in fish scales. And it's hard work in the canneries, it's long days, it's cold, not very 
nice work. And he said, you must have cleaned a lot of fish. And she said, I think we cleaned out all of Puget Sound. And I just think about how sad that must have been for her, you know, knowing that this is our sacred food, that there's a spiritual connection to the fish as our sustaining life force for thousands and thousands of years. And until 1973, tribal fishers were not allowed to be out on the water fishing and practicing our traditional life ways. And so to survive, the women, instead of caring for children, had to go to work in the canneries. In the 19th and 20th century, federal and state governments prohibited indigenous tribes from fishing in areas like the Skagit watershed, areas overwhelmingly where white settlers had moved in and set up shop. Those rules forever changed the makeup of fish in these bodies of water and the way indigenous communities, like the Lummi, interacted with long-held traditions. We were considered poachers to go out and go fishing. So when the can was perfected and people saw an opportunity to monetize the fishery, indigenous fishers were forced out and not allowed on the water. Nets were confiscated, canoes were confiscated, boats were confiscated, people were arrested. In 1970, after decades of enforcing fishing regulations against tribal members, the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Washington filed a suit against the state on behalf of the U.S. and as a trustee for seven tribes. The case was called United States versus the State of Washington, but the outcome is better known as the Bolt decision. In 1974, the court gave these tribes the right to half of the fishing catch and split fishery management. So the Lummi could once again fish, legally. Still, by the time the decision came around, the Skagit watershed had suffered decades of mismanagement, overfishing, and pollution. It changed the way that we interacted with the fishery, right? It was no longer a sacred practice. We were entering capitalism with everybody else. That connection that we've been taught was changed, I think. So it was a success that we got the right to fish back, and we were no longer considered poachers for harvesting salmon and for practicing our treaty rights and our inherent sovereign rights. It's, it's good that that happened, but it's also kind of sad how it changed the relationship. Local environmental groups call the Skagit River the last best hope for salmon recovery in Puget Sound. And it's a grim last hope. Rising water temperatures make it difficult for salmon to return home. Culverts, dams, and other barriers complicate the salmon's already turbulent upstream journey. Climate change? propelled and hastened by settler practices, is directly interfering with the salmon cycle. It's decimating the pattern so important to the salmon's longevity. So salmon, they spawn in their natal streams and they go downstream out into the ocean. And then when they come back up, they spawn again. It's a cycle. They always return to the same place. The dams where this is a problem is that they impede the fish's ability to get upstream to their natal spawning grounds. And if they can't spawn, they can't reproduce, they die. So they built these fish ladders, right? (laughs) I've been to see these dams and these fish ladders are just the most ridiculous thing. It's like this impossible staircase or, you know, like at Grand Coulee Dam, I think it is, they have a vacuum system where they like vacuum the fish up as they're coming through and then they, they like 
put them in a truck and they truck them around the dam and then they shoot them to the other side or something like this. It's just the most insane thing ever. Oh, to be a fish in this day and age. So it interrupts their journey, their natural cycle, their natural flow of life. And even if they can make it to the other side to spawn, that usually coming down is like something like half of the salmon coming back through the dams are shredded in the turbines. I've seen these fish ladders up close and can confirm that they're ridiculous. To watch a fish catapult itself out of the water, willfully foregoing breathing, an attempt to climb a ladder is surreal. It would almost be comical if you didn't think about how torturous it must be and just how impossible we have made the salmon's journey. I think about salmon a lot, I guess. (laughs) My dad's a fisherman. I'm from this fishing culture, and it's a real problem right now what salmon are facing. Extinction, a lot of species have disappeared. Salmon, salmon species. The last 200 years have been really rough on salmon. The Skagit River is nicknamed the Magic Skagit, and it's for good reason. It's the largest river that drains into the Puget Sound. And most importantly, it's the only river in the lower 48 where all five species of Pacific salmon spawn in its waters. Preserving the Magic Skagit is essential for saving the salmon population, and in turn, for protecting the broader ecosystem of the Puget Sound. Consider another iconic Pacific Northwest animal, the orca whale. They're endangered, and their survival depends on a healthy population of salmon. If we can't protect the Skagit, we lose both the salmon and the whales. As if the cumulative damage of colonizer practices and pollution wasn't already enough to try and counteract in the Skagit watershed, activists found themselves facing a new threat, imperial metals. Now I want to introduce you to Amy Trainer. She serves as the Swinomish Indian Tribal Community's Environmental Policy Director. Basically, I am <laughs> charged at the end of the day with making sure there are fish to fish since salmon are the pillar of the tribe's treaty rights. The Swinomish Tribal Nation hugs the southern end of the American San Juan Islands and extends east into the Skagit watershed, including where the mouth of the Skagit River feeds into the Puget Sound. Much like their Coast Salish neighbors to the north, the Lummi, The Swinomish traditions and culture heavily rely on the salmon. The threat of mining by imperial metals in the headwaters of the Skagit represented an existential threat for the Swinomish. Imperial Metals, a Vancouver-based mining company, has held mineral claims in a swath of land, including the Skagit watershed, since 1988. In 2019, it filed a permit to begin mining in what's known as the Donut Hole, an area of unprotected land at the headwaters of the Skagit River. When the surrounding Skagit Valley was made a provincial park protected by British Columbia in 1996, the donut hole was set aside to preserve these historic mining rights dating back to the 1930s, the same mining rights Imperial Metals held in 2018. The plan was to conduct exploratory drilling for copper and gold right in the headwaters. From the start, environmental leaders saw the devastating potential of the Imperial Metals plan for excavation. 
We were sort of waving our arm over here like, here's this language, this proposal, even though it's for an exploratory permit, would have devastating impacts. You know, drilling this mother hole 2,000 meters into the earth with daughter holes, as they call it. You know, all of the the tailings, ponds, the, the logging, the creating new roads, the heliport, just it was a massive development in and of itself. And that would lead to even more massive development and destruction. Imperial Metals, aside from just having a hilariously nefarious name, was responsible for one of the worst mining disasters in Canada's history. In 2014, a dam containing hazardous materials failed at Imperial Metals' Mount Polly mine. The ponds where they stored tailings, toxic byproduct from mining, were overwhelmed by water weight. The tailing pond slid open, the dam burst, and 25 billion liters of toxic waste entered the waterways of Williams Lake in British Columbia. Those bodies of water were also sources of drinking water and spawning grounds for salmon. And so it destroyed the water quality, the sockeye spawning grounds of First Nations. And from what we could tell, there had not been much of any accountability for those actions, those just devastating impacts. So we were very concerned about, of all the companies, this company being the the one to propose in in these ecologically and culturally sensitive headwaters. So then what do those concerns sort of spill over, pun intended, if you will? Um, Well, again, the Skagit has, you know, these magnificent wild runs of fish. And so even though there are three dams on the upper part of the Skagit, you couldn't necessarily stop those toxic mining tailings and that leachate from impacting fish. And it was just, frankly, it was a a consequence that nobody wanted to even mess with. Because the Skagit spans borders of all kinds, the U.S. and Canada agreed to a sort of co-governance over the land in the 80s. So in the summer of 2018, when loggers began clearing the headwaters in preparation for the mine, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin contacted British Columbia's Premier John Horgan and expressed concern over the state of the headwaters. The following year, when Imperial Metals applied for its mining permit, the situation escalated. In response, a group of leaders from the Washington Treaty Tribes, British Columbia First Nations, and environmental groups like Washington Wild penned an op-ed denouncing the proposed mining. From there, Washington Wild went on the offensive— and coordinated what became a cross-borders coalition. It included U.S. tribes and First Nations leadership, federal and state governments on both sides of the border, multiple conservation groups, businesses, faith leaders, and elected officials. All in, nearly 300 members joined the coalition. The coalition had the manpower, the will, and the reason to stop imperial medals. But as we've seen time and time again, that's not always enough to win. Too often, it can feel like muddied interests win out over conservationists. And that is typically the case. But not this time. I don't think they ever expected the, the wave of opposition to keep growing from certainly Canada, but also the United States. I mean, it was, it was a huge coalition. Over three years of consistent pressure and lobbying and opposition across nations and borders pushed Imperial Metals to the bargaining table. It would have been simpler to revoke Imperial Metals' short-term permit to the mine, but that wouldn't have permanently protected the Skagit. 
as long as Imperial Metals owned tenures or rights to the land, the Skagit was at risk. Luckily, the coalition had prepared for another approach. I believe that the idea to buy the mineral tenures from Imperial Metals had been on the table for a number of years. Obviously, we were all very committed to getting the British Columbia Premier Horgan to say no to the permit. But at the end of the day, that wasn't going to be a permanent solution. The fact is, these, these tenures needed to be purchased and extinguished forever. At long last, in the summer of 2021, Amy finally got the phone call she'd been waiting for. And they said, you know, have you heard? And I said, no. <laughs> and they said, well, I, I think the deal's going to go through. It's hush-hush right now, and it's going to take a couple of months. But it's really looking like, you know, the, the mining company has is, is agreed to sell. And it was just like this overwhelming awe, oh my God, you know, just it, amazing. By January of 2022... The case was settled. Imperial Metals was out of Skagit. A $19 million deal was pulled together with funding from both British Columbia and Washington state governments, alongside contributions from environmental groups in both nations. With that, they collectively bought out Imperial Metals from the rights they held to the land. It's an incredibly meaningful victory for the entire ecosystem. And it's a blueprint for how to make lasting change. Today, Imperial Metals isn't drilling in the Skagit River. It took a lot of work from a lot of people over a number of years to get to success. You know, the saying goes that environmentalists have to win every time, but the developers only have to win once. I think it is thinking about how permanent those federal protections or state protections can be. You know, if you can wrap it up in a conservation easement that would be in perpetuity, great. If you're just relying on local zoning, well, zoning rules, as we all know, can change. Wilderness cannot be changed by executive order, by executive action. It has to be through an act of Congress. So that seems mostly permanent, but not entirely. So I think the fact that you are seeing this back to the land movement from tribal nations is really inspiring because if tribal nations ultimately own or given the land back, then they in turn can protect it by turning it into trust lands where the government holds it in trust for the tribal nation. But it's one of the most forms of permanent protection I believe you could have. And even with this victory, the work continues. Amy's team is now focused on lowering the temperatures of the Skagit by strengthening the tree line along its main stem and tributaries. And most crucially, the land won back from Imperial Metals still needs to be transferred back to its rightful stewards. Well, imagine the most sort of magnificent old growth or tall stand of trees in a mountainous area with clear waters and just the, the peace, the serenity, the solitude, the sort of sense of awe, frankly, that that kind of habitat brings makes me get a little choked up thinking that this area is still, still so precious. This is not something you can create. This is a gift. And 
uh, the Swinomish tribe, among other tribes and First Nations as Coast Salish peoples, have been stewards of, of this area since time immemorial for literally thousands of years. And so at the headwaters of this, you know, just extraordinary salmon river, you know, salmon evolved for millions of years in this river with these trees in this habitat. And to think that we are in a couple of generations going to undo that or disregard that and have a, a disrespect for the cultural heritage of these indigenous peoples, for these stewards who, from whom we have, frankly, so much to learn still. You know, we hear, oh, we've been here, my family's third generation, fourth generation. Okay, I respect that. But if that is to have meaning, then what does it mean when you hear Native nations and their families talk about, we are here for hundreds, if not thousands of generations. Like, let those roots into a sense of place sink in. I want to end with one of those stories that is thousands of years old. The Lummi story that explains the tribe's intimate relationship to the salmon. Rena was kind enough to share this story with me. While she swears she's not an oral storyteller, I think we can all agree she paints a beautiful picture. So a long time ago, the people were hungry and they were looking around and they needed a, a way to survive and they needed food. The elders thought about it and they prayed for an answer, they prayed for a solution. And just when it seemed that all hope was lost, an elder had a dream and she said to one of the strongest of the young men, you're to go out in a canoe and you're to find us some food. And so he did. He left and he left, went in his canoe and he was paddling and paddling along and um, he wasn't sure what he was looking for, just that he was to go out and to, to find a way for the people to be sustained. And as he paddled, a fog, a thick fog came up around him. When it cleared, he realized he was lost. And he was hungry, obviously. So he thought, well, this is it for me. And he uh, started to sing his, his death song. And as he finished, he heard something in the water out in front of him. And he paddled towards it. And it was a woman. She had on a cedar hat, a big cedar hat. And he thought, what's she doing way out here? So he pulled her into the canoe. And she asked what was wrong and he, you know, he explained that his people were starving. And after he had finished explaining what he was doing out there, she took off her hat and she dipped it in the water five times. And each time she dipped, a new fish would come in and she put it into the canoe. And she told him that these are my children. These are the salmon, the salmon children. And... I'll give them to you and to your people to sustain you, but you have to you have to follow these rules. You have to respect them as my children. You can only take what you need and you can only make sure that while the salmon are running through your streams that all the people are fed and never waste a salmon and never turn your nose up at a salmon. Always be grateful for this gift because it's the sacrifice that I'm making so that your people can live. She went back with him to the village, and for a time, they were happy. 
One day she was walking around the village and she heard a child say, oh, salmon again, I don't want it. And, and that hurt her feelings. And then she was walking around again and then she heard another person say, oh my God, I'm so sick of salmon. Isn't there anything else to eat? And so that hurt her feelings. And so she said, okay, well, I guess I'll take my children and we'll go. And so she did. And, you know, one of the villagers saw her out in the water leaving and then she went under and then she was gone and the fish didn't come back. And so then the people started to starve again and they said, please go find the salmon woman and go bring her back. And the man was so embarrassed about how the people had behaved and how they had treated the salmon. Eventually she took pity on him and agreed that the salmon could come back, but only during one part of the year and only one at a time. And so that's why the salmon run at different phases of the year and only during certain seasons. I love that story. The part that really resonates with me is that the salmon woman refers to the salmon as a sacrifice. Not a gift, but a sacrifice she makes in order to support and feed the lummy. It's this beautiful acknowledgement of our shared responsibility to each other. And it's this sense of balance in nature that also speaks to Rena. Nature wants balance and harmony and happiness. I think that that's how I maintain hope. The maintenance of hope has to be like the answer, right? Like you have to continue to persist and work on behalf of whatever thing it is that you are called to work on or care about. For me, right now, it happens to be salmon. All season, we're pursuing what Rena calls the maintenance of hope. We're celebrating and acknowledging the incredible work it takes to move one step forward in protecting our planet and the people on it. To read more of Rena's poetry, you can head to renapriest.com. I recommend you keep an eye out for her upcoming anthology that's all about salmon. To stay up to date on Amy's work and the future preservation of the Skagit, follow the Skagit Environmental Endowment Commission, a binational group charged with protecting the upper Skagit at skagiteec.org. As She Rises is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Emily Rudder is our managing producer. The show is produced by myself, Lindsay Cradwell, and Liz Smith, with research and writing by Carmen Bocacarillo and Ale Tejeda with original music by Andrea Kristen's daughter and editorial support by Aya Lane. Until next time. Hey, everyone. You can listen to every episode of As She Rises, including those from the newest season, ad-free with Wondery Plus. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.